Good morning. Welcome to worship here at Springfield Church of the Brethren as I drop my stuff. There we go. I hope everyone is doing well this morning. The young couple were nearing their destination. But before they came to David's childhood home, they first must pass the city Jerusalem. The golden days were long past. The line of David no longer sat on the throne. Instead, a governor ruled these lands along with the descendant of Esau, who claimed the crown over Jacob's people, King Herod the Great. Herod may have renovated the temple, making it beautiful again, but the people knew that he was a Roman collaborator. It was he and his father who ousted the last Hasmonean king and turned Judea from an ally of Rome into a Roman-occupied province. A darkness of oppression had fallen over the land. But it was not to last. A Messiah was to be born, a descendant of David, who would return his ancestral kingdom to its former glory. They couldn't have known the secret of Mary and Joseph, that this young woman traveling by the city carried the Messiah. Would they have greeted him with joy? Or would they be confused? as to how this child from Nazarene would become king. First, they would need to let go of their expectations of a conqueror and allow God's will to be done. We light the third candle and call it joy. Maybe May joyously we joyously welcome, welcome the Messiah, Messiah into, into this, this world, world who, who will make all things right according to the, the Father's will. will. If you'll join with me in prayer. Father, strip away our expectations of what it means for the Christ to be born. Lord, we do not allow our hearts to be turned from the joy that the Son brings into this world. May your will be done now and always. Amen. Our scripture today comes from Jeremiah 33, 14 through 16. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I have made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line, and he will do what is just and right in this land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. And the name of, and this, this is the name by which um, he will be called. It will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. Amen. If you'll join in hymn number 167, Jesu, Joy of Man's Desire. I didn't change the numbers in my system. 604. So, the question you may be tempted to ask, if you were to go back into ancient Judah at the time when, before and just after Jesus was born, and ask, who is the Messiah? Or, when is the Messiah coming? You know, you want to kind of get the read of what the Jews of Judea thought about the Messiah. But I think... I think if you talk to a few people, you'd start to realize that there's a bigger question. What is the Messiah? 
Because believe it or not, despite the fact that the Jews were all one people living in one land together, ruled over by one Roman Empire, they didn't all agree on everything. I mean, imagine that, a society living in a nation together not agreeing on everything, right? That's unusual, right? No. Each of them kind of thought different things. Different things that reflected who they were and their place in, this, in their world. So, what was that? Well, the biggest two groups, of course, were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. I'm going to start with the Sadducees. The Sadducees and their sort of cousins called the Herodians. Now, if you went up to a Sadducee and said, when is the Messiah coming? Who is the Messiah? What is the Messiah like? Their answer would be, there's a Messiah coming? Nuts. It didn't really wasn't really on their radar. It wasn't something they wanted. So a reminder, the Sadducees are the people who ran the temple. They were the, the men who collected the taxes for the temple, who collected you know, the food that was donated to the temple, all that kind of thing. And guess what? They were rich. They were respected. They were well-liked. Okay, no, I take that back. They weren't well-liked, but they were respected. For them, the Messiah was a dangerous thing. I mean, just think about it. If you are in a society when you are the top people, you know, you get along with the rulers, you get along and you get taxes from everyone else, the idea of a Messiah who is going to come and promote the justice of God, the Torah of God, that's a bad thing for you. And there were actually many Messiahs in those days, or what they were claimed to be messiahs in their days. There was a Judas of Galilee. Judas got really upset when the Romans commissioned a census in order to do better taxation. It's the same census that leads to Mary and Joseph being on the road. And so he rebels. He attacks the Romans. He attacks the Roman collaborators. He burns down houses. He steals cattle. You know, all the the usual kind of banditry things that are part of a rebellion in that, those days. From his, his first, this first movement of his and through his sons, this will eventually give rise to a movement known as the Zealots. But we'll come back to them later. There was the Simon of Perea. He was actually a servant of Herod. Decided he didn't like Herod anymore. Don't blame him. So what does he do? Well, he sacks the, the, the palace in Jericho and then burns it down. And, well, before he got much farther, the Romans came in and he tried to escape. It didn't work. That's what happens to most messiahs. The Romans get them. And then there was a guy, uh, Athagones, I believe is the name. He was a shepherd living in the land of Judah. This is all of a sudden sounding like David, right? You know, a shepherd boy living in Judah grows up to be tall and strong. And he decides to take that similarity to David one step closer. And he gathers around himself a band of strong men who go and live in the wilderness and then perpetrate guerrilla attacks against the Romans and the Roman collaborators. You see, there's a problem with the people that were called messiahs. Now, none of these men actually claim to be messiahs. 
but every, other people called them that. And those messiahs were a problem for anyone in power because, well, let's face it. If the messiahs rose up with these men and went into Jerusalem, the zealots, I mean the zealots, the Sadducees were going to get it. Or if they managed to whip all the population into a full rebellion, the Sadducees were still going to get it. And even if the, the regular populace or the rebels didn't get the Sadducees, the Romans would get them. Because when the Romans kind of came in to quell a rebellion, they didn't tend to say, oh, you guys are on our side. No, they just kind of tended to get everyone. To be fair, that's exactly what happened in 66 and in the year 70. That's the first and the second Roman Jewish wars where the Romans got everyone. It didn't matter that the Zealots started the wars. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians, everyone got it. Everyone got it. But they couldn't exactly ignore the scriptures. They had to recognize that the, 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 uh, the prophets had talked about this Messiah coming. And so they, they reasoned through it. They could say a couple things. They could say, you know what? The Messiah was already here. The one who brought us back to this place, who rebuilt our kingdom... We could say it was Cyrus the Great. Yeah, I know he wasn't a Jew, but you know what? He let us come back and rebuild the temple. What a great guy. You know what? It was uh, Judas the Hammer, Judas Maccabeus. He restored our kingdom to us, kicking out the Seleucid Empire and, and allowing us to continue worshiping our God. Those were the messiahs. You know what? I'll tell you. The Messiah is going to come someday. Over there, over there, way over there. You see, way over there, that's when the Messiah is coming. You don't have to worry about it. It'll be after your lifetime. We cool? Cool? Everyone cool? Not going to rebel? Awesome. You just wait. He'll come. The Herodians were pseudo-partners with the Sadducees. The Herodians were the people who supported Herod the Great. Now, Herod took a slightly more pragmatic approach to handling the Messiah. And I have to say, it has something to do probably with the fact that Herod was an usurper. He didn't gain the seat of the, the throne of Judea because he was born into it. No, it's because his dad knew the right people. And he played his cards right and... And sure enough, he was able to make uh, this guy named Antigonus the Hasmonean, the last of the Hasmonean dynasty, he managed to make him fight with the Roman Empire. And what happens when you fight the Roman Empire nine times out of ten? You lose. Especially, you know, in the ancient Near East, you lose. And that's what happened. And now Herod got to take the throne. It was his. No one else is going to take it. No one. Usurpers always fear other usurpers. That's just what happens. And so he takes a slightly more pragmatic approach because he knows his throne is always precarious. He managed to take it from someone else. Someone could take it from him. It didn't help that he was already in a delicate situation. After all, 
He was trying to lead a nation of Jews who only worship one God, who do not worship at altars. And he was acting as the proxy king for a Roman empire that was increasingly worshiping their own emperors as gods. That's kind of hard to stand as the middleman between that. To make it even harder, he was an outsider. He was a descendant of Esau. He was an Edomite. Now, you know, Esau, that's the brother of Jacob. You know, going back far enough, it's the son of Abraham, but still different, not a member of the Jewish tradition. So though he said, I'm Jewish, he wasn't ethnically Jewish. And that was a bit of a problem for a lot of people. He knew that his position could be taken away at any time. He could be the next Saul to a new David. You know, no one likes Saul. He disappears on purpose. He's killed off so the new Messiah can come. Back then it was David. And so when the Magi come and tell him, you know, a king has been born. Where can we worship him? He takes that threat seriously. And he sends men to go and study and read and figure out where this Messiah is supposed to be born. I want you to listen to the words. This is Micah 5, 2 through 4. If you jump to the story in Matthew, they just quote part of 2 and 4, but this is the whole section. Notice what they don't talk about. The prophet wrote, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely for then his greatness will reach the ends of the earth. Now I know he was looking for a very specific answer, which is, where is the Messiah going to be born? And this is the text that says, Bethlehem. Ephrathath is a poetic name for Bethlehem. Like, you know, we call um, New York City the Big Apple. But notice also, the kind of king that Micah is talking about, the kind of Messiah. It's a political Messiah. It's a Messiah that will come and rule the people. It is a Messiah that will make their kingdom great. And as I said, there's nothing an usurper fears more than someone who's going to come and usurp their position back from them. That's what happens with those in power when they encounter the idea of a Messiah. They can be like uh, the Sadducees and say, you know what, there's no Messiah coming and the Messiah has already come. Don't worry about it. Don't look at it. Or you can be like the Herodians who say, you know what, let's kill him. Which, let's face it, that's what the Sadducees and the Romans eventually come to an agreement to do at the end of Jesus' life. So the Herodians try to take him out at the beginning, and the Romans and the Sadducees try to take him out at the end. But most people 
in Judea. Most of the Jews did not belong to the Sadducees or the Herodians. After all, they were the elite group. They were the ones who had all the political power. But when it came to actual numbers, almost everyone in Judea belonged to one of two other groups. And to be fair, they were basically the same group. We call them the Pharisees. The other group is the Zealots, who I mentioned earlier. The Zealots are really just an off, a more violent brand of the Pharisees. They're really the same group. They're just, we'll come back to them. Now, okay, so the Pharisees started in Babylon, sort of. Imagine, imagine you have been practicing a faith, you know, we're going with just the Torah right now, the first five books, that center around a faith that means you go and worship God at one spot, at a temple or before that, the tabernacle. But all of a sudden, you have lost your city where the temple stood. Not only that, the temple's been wiped off the face of the earth. You have no tabernacle. That's been gone for a few hundred years anyway. And the place that they move you to says you can't build a temple here. Your faith is not going to look the same. you got to find a new way to practice your faith in God. So that's what they do. They start reworking their faith. Instead of focusing on doing all these right times where you take this to the temple or you take that to the temple or you pray this at the temple or you pray that at the temple. Instead... It's about following the laws and living your life purely as a priest would. It's a very, very heavy emphasis on whether you're clean or unclean. Now the Babylonian time came to an end. They returned. The temple was rebuilt. But this new movement of studying the scriptures and learning it and debating them remained. And so people would gather at, these, at the temple, but they gather at these gathering places which translates into Greek, synagogues, the places of assembly. This continues quietly existing. Alexander the Great comes in. Alexander, actually pretty great in terms of the Jewish relationship with him. He was like, yeah, you guys do you. Just send me your taxes, but do you. Well, you know, Alexander the Great only lives to like, what, 27? Something like that. And then he dies. And in comes one of his generals and begins what's called the Seleucid Empire. I, one of these days, I need to do a sermon series where I at least do one or two sermons where I talk about this time period. Because it's completely missing from our Bible, but it sets up everything for what happens when Jesus comes. But Seleucid Empire goes off the deep end in terms of making the Jewish people Greek. No more circumcision. Now you guys have to eat pork. You can't you know, burn things to God, none of that. And so this guy, Matthias, rises up with his sons and attacks them and fights them off. And Matthias's son is named Judas, uh, manages to, to wield off and get rid of the Seleucids. We call him Judas the Hammer or Judas Maccabee. They create a new empire. These are the Hasmoneans. It's under the Hasmoneans that the Pharisees actually make the movement from becoming kind of a loose organization of people who like to sit around and talk about faith and talk about scripture to an actual centralized, well, not centralized, an actual movement with these rabbis, these teachers leading different synagogues. 
because they didn't like the Hasmoneans that much. See, the whole point of this new Judaism is that you needed to be like the priest. You needed to be clean. You needed to be pure. There was a lot of rules saying how everyone should do this. But then in order to be a priest, you had to even do that more so. And in order to be the high priest, you had to be super, super clean. It would be like, you know, you can't even, like, touch your wife. You can't even be in the same room with your wife after she's passed away. Because that would make you unholy and you could no longer be the high priest. These Hasmoneans, though, they didn't seem to care about remaining pure, which seems crazy considering who Matthias and Judas Maccabee were like. Instead, they were okay with kind of blurring the lines. Like, for instance, they were Levites. Remember, there's 12 tribes of, of Joseph, or 12 tribes of Jacob, and the Levites are the ones who are not given any property of their own or any province of their own because they are to serve as gods and the people's intermediaries and be spread out throughout the nation. And so as their judges called, as there are kings are called, first from Benjamin, then from Judah, and then the northern tribes, remember they weren't great about following God's way, but God continued to call kings out among them. They were always of other tribes, never of Levi. There was a line that God would not cross. Levites are meant to be here to protect the relationship between God and people. They are not there to rule over the people. And the Hasmoneans were fine with stepping over that line. Someone could be both king and high priest. And you cannot remain clean enough acting as a king in order to also be the high priest. And so they rejected this. They fought against this. They also didn't like the fact that the Hasmoneans forced their faith down others' throats. They attacked the people who lived to the south, the Edomites, and forced them to, into Judaism, which ends up biting them in the butt when one of those descendants, one of those descendants of Esau named Herod, manages to take their empire away from them. The Pharisees, and this, by extension, this is pretty much all of Judea, is waiting for a Messiah to come that will not only take a political power, but be like David, a king who is zealous in their faith, a king who is, for all their faults, always going to try and orient themselves on God. They read sections like Isaiah 9. For us, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. If they had a king like that, if they had a king like that who was so concerned that everyone could live their lives in the correct way, then they could all be pure. 
They could all be clean, just as God told them they should be back in Exodus 19, when he said to them, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's it. They get a king like this who will come in and set everything right, and they get to be the kingdom of the priests. And so all they had to do was live as close to the priest right now, to live as perfectly according to the law as possible. And then there was that last group. Now, as I said, it, to be fair, the zealots are really Pharisees. Yeah, Pharisees like Gamiel, he appears in Acts. He's a fairly good guy, but he's really chummy with the Sadducees and the Romans. He's way over here. And then if we go all the way over there, we have the zealots who basically agree with the Pharisees on everything, except they're fine with stabbing Sadducees too, and Romans. Because for them, the Messiah is already here, or kind of here, maybe here, we don't know. But we're not waiting any longer. You see, they're the ones who were following all those men that scared the Sadducees so bad earlier. You know, um, Judas of Galilee, um, Simon of Perea, and Agrathongas. You know, they, they, they were all being followed by zealots. These were men who wanted to overthrow the Herod um, dynasty. They wanted to throw Rome out, and they wanted to begin a theocratic society set, um, centered on the Torah, centered on the Pharisees' interpretation of the law. They were kind of like the Hasmoneans, where they wanted to ensure that everyone followed their form of the faith, but they were more about, you know, if you're not Jewish, get out or we'll stab you. They were the extremist. Now, why do I bring up how these each thought about the Messiah? Because I really think that these four strands are still alive and well in our Christianity today. I mean, think about it. You have those Christians out there that are just like the Sadducees who say, you know what? Life's pretty good. I got what I need. I got what I want. Life's good. I'll pay lip service to the Messiah. But you know, I am mainly going to focus on making sure I'm here at church every single Sunday. People see that. That's all good, right? You see I'm here at church, right? You know I'm Christian? Cool beans. That's it. And you have those who are like the Herodians. They, they're, they're seen at church just like them, but they're a little more worried about what's going on around them. And you know what? They've got the power. They've got the authority. They've got the money that if someone rattles their foundation a little bit, they'll squash them. We know there's people. And we know that the vast majority of Christians today, at least it feels like it a lot, are more like the Pharisees. You know, they're, they're worried about being right, looking right. You know, they go to church. They make sure they're not seen with the wrong people. They make sure that they're not seen in the wrong place. They make sure that their faith looks unshakable and that it feels unshakable. It's not... It's not something that's fake. It's real. You know, the Pharisees weren't fake about their faith. They really believed. 
but they just got the focus wrong. Just like in today, we have modern Christians who'd say, you know what, faith alone is great. When we encounter Jesus and Paul and the others, they say, you know what, faith without works is not enough. And we have the other flip side of that, you know, those who do all the works, but they have no faith. They don't believe, they don't have the love. Modern-day Pharisees. And then, of course, we have the zealots. They're the extremist brunch. And we all know the zealots. They're the ones who make the news all the time. You know, those who say, you know what? I am okay with picking up a weapon to ensure faith is practiced my way in this land. Whether that weapon is an actual weapon or whether that weapon is through the use of law and government. Perfectly fine with picking that up and saying, you all got to live your lives according to my faith. We still see that the whole, we see all four of those in today's world. They're still alive and kicking. To be fair, it was alive and kicking within Jesus' group. We see people like, Matthew, the tax collector, he may have been kind of Pharisee, but let's face it, when you're a tax collector, you're more aligned with the Sadducees, those who get along with the Romans. You had Simon the Zealot on the other end of it, who's like, you know what? I've got a sword. Let's go cut people. I mean, that, that's an argument I've heard with Peter. The reason Peter cuts off the ear of the servant in the garden, it's because he's a zealot. He is ready and willing to go to war for the Messiah. But when the Messiah comes, it's not any of those. It's not like they should have been clueless. After all, Isaiah also talks about how the Messiah is going to be the suffering servant, the one who is rejected, the one who dies who is executed. We all have our own expectations, even to this day. We all have those expectations that color our ability when we approach the crib with Jesus in it, that shade how we're going to see this baby and how we're going to see the work of this child. But this world, this story, does not go by our expectations. It goes by God's will. And the Messiah that comes in isn't one that is going to be fine with, hey, you know, you guys have got everything great, that's great. And is it going to be fine with, hey, you guys don't like anything, go stab him. It's one who is fine with telling those who are first, you're going to be last. It's fine with going to those who say, we must take what is ours and says, no, you need to live peacefully and to serve others. It's still a fight within us today, within Christianity today. Do we fight? Do we act peacefully? Do we leave? Do we serve? As we've gone on this journey, we started in Nazareth, 
and talked about how we must leave behind that which we are familiar with, we are comfortable with, and realize that God is calling us into something new. We have passed the hills where the, the people renewed their promises and then broke them to God. And we're reminded that the shame of our past should not keep us from approaching the crib. Today, we're reminded that when we get there and we look at the crib, that we should see the Messiah for who the Messiah is and not for who we expect the Messiah to be. Because it will always surprise you. Thank you. As you go out today, let go of your expectations. Let go of your expectations of who Jesus is and see Jesus for who he actually is. When you read scriptures, when you encounter people, be challenged by it. Be willing to let go. As we come to the cradle, as we come to the manger and see the baby, realize that just as there was with every child that has ever been born, infinite possibilities. Because in Jesus, there are infinite possibilities. We just have to open our eyes to where he's leading us. Amen.